Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So today we turn to the sermon series on Ephesians, where we've been thinking about God's overthrow in our lives. That is, God invading and working in new ways to shape his people. And at the end of chapter 3, where we find ourselves reading today, Paul wraps up his foundational theological ideas and perspectives. And Ephesians, going forward, after we're done with today, what happens is Paul makes uh, a series of practical statements with regard to all that he has said previously up to this point. So today is a little bit of a turning point, a transition for us. Today, what he does basically is he pulls together all of his main ideas that he's mentioned earlier, that Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God, and that Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another. And these are accomplished through the powerful, sovereign and free working of the triune God and are recognized and received by faith alone through his grace. There's a lot there. Let me explain. But first, let me ask the question that every one of us routinely asks in our lives. Who am I? This is a question I think that haunts us over the course of our lives. It, it begins in adolescence around the age 10 or 11 when we begin to realize that others think about us and have ideas about who we are and what we're like. And peer pressure becomes a really important thing. And thank the Lord that we don't get stuck there. Not fully, anyway. <laughs> it's in those early adolescent development years that we start to acquire an understanding that we're autonomous people and we have the ability to shape our character. We have the ability to shape a little bit who we are. And really, from that point on, we always seem to be asking the question of ourselves, am I who I want to be? We make decisions based on the underlying answer to the question, which most of the time goes unverbalized. Our decisions, most of them are insignificant, right? But to be honest, they play important roles in defining our character. What we choose to wear, for example. Maybe not that big of a deal as you're an older person, but to an adolescent, that's a massive question every morning before school, right? Uh, you know, it might be a big issue if I showed up to a faculty meeting wearing Bermuda shorts and a tank top and flip-flops. I perhaps would find myself um, having a conversation about my timing of beachwear, right? Maybe you students wouldn't mind, I don't know. Um, but as we grow, our decisions about all kinds of things influence our character, like the kinds of friends that we select, choice of school to attend, or the field of study that we pursue. These shape the answer to the question. We also begin to develop key labels that help us answer the question, who am I? Athlete, musician, student, boyfriend or girlfriend, fiance, husband or wife, parent, homemaker, teacher, 
administrator, business manager, or owner. We, we have these labels that we put on to ourselves. And our titles may even shape our identities as well. Doctor, miss, reverend, honorable, captain, director. Maybe, tongue-in-cheek, even our vehicles or living quarters shape the answer to the question. If we're honest, though, we take a little bit of time to seriously reflect upon the question. It's a much deeper question than those external items. When we ask, who am I? We're really asking an identity question. Who am I really? At my core, at the heart of my character, am I really just the sum of all these externals? Married, four kids, two cars, four bathrooms, no, four bedrooms, three bathrooms, <laughs> PhD, dreadlock, professor, pastor. Am I really the sum of just those external things? I find that as I grow older, this question becomes more important. I want my life to count for something more. I want to matter. I want to make a difference in the world. So in this prayer, at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul points us toward the right thing a proper understanding of who we are. It's an overthrow of our identity. And this overthrow requires three things that Paul mentions in this section of his letter. First, I want to speak about power, God's work in the lives of believers. Second, I want to talk about possession, being filled with the fullness of God. And third, I want to speak of process, Holy Spirit-infused faith in Christ. First, let me speak about power. Verse 16 reads, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul begins this section by stating that he knows that any transformation must come from God and God alone. He is the heavenly father who has inexhaustible resources to bring about a holy unity of God's people as the family of God. Paul knows that God seeks to provide his readers with an inner strength of soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that comes from our own will or determination. We cannot make ourselves into people who are rooted and grounded in love and who are filled with his faithfulness. In a human sense, power is something that is wielded to make things happen and accomplish something. It takes power to move a car. The engine is designed to translate fuel into power to get it going in the right direction and at a particular speed. It takes power to go to school, put our minds to the study and improved knowledge of a particular subject matter. Some days, it takes power to simply get out of bed and make the coffee. What Paul wants for his reader, though, is that we would have the best kind of power, not of the will of man, but of the will of God, which transforms and renews and remakes and restores and informs so that all of life has a godly purpose. This is somewhat of a spiritual irony because in life, we often believe that we're the ones that need to lead and direct and empower our own future. And Paul knows this irony deeply because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he states that he realized that God's power is perfected in weakness. This is the model of Jesus himself, who, 
according to Philippians chapter 2, was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being formed, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If we're going to allow God's overthrow in our lives, we must be willing for his power. And this means we must first recognize our need for God's power to transform us. Otherwise, we do it on our own, or we try to. And usually God leaves that one alone. Little meaningful transformation occurs. God's power is crucial in the transformative work and comes as a result of the spirit in your inner being. It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who applies to believers the personal presence and power of God. The Nicene Creed, which we're going to momentarily say, says that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. This is God himself who strengthens his people in your inner being. God alone has the power to influence someone internally in their character. Now, Dallas Willard, who I'm fond of and have studied under, speaks about the inner being as the core or heart of the individual. It's from one's heart that all the parts of the person come together into one and which makes up the character of the person. It's from our heart, the inner being, that we image God because it's in that place that we choose how to live. It's in our heart that we bring things into being like words or ideas or feelings or actions, or relationships. This is what needs to be transformed from death and sin to life and holiness. Our inner being is what needs this influence of God and his power. If our inner being experiences true spiritual transformation, it must happen through power, through the spirit. There is no other way. So who are you really? Are you one who is strengthened with power through God's spirit in your inner being? Second, the believer must understand possession. Two times in this little passage, Paul speaks about the Christian being filled with something. In verse 17, he says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then again in verse 19, he suggests the same thing, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's instructing us that we must be filled with God, that we actually hold God within Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is the only begotten son of God, God from God, light from light, one being with the father. This one resides in the life of the Christian. Now, we've seen possession before, and it's not pretty. Maybe various horror movies come to mind. The story of the demoniac, though, from Luke chapter 8, is more terrifying than any of them. This guy was possessed by a legion of demons. Now, a traditional Roman legion was made up of more than 5,500 soldiers. And when Jesus asks this man his name, he says, my name is Legion. He's also described as one who wore no clothes, lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead ones. 
He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. And he apparently, because of the legion that possessed him, was so strong, they could not contain him. He was tortured and practically dead as a result of his possessions. So in this story, it seems that the demoniac, as he is called, was unwillingly possessed. How often, though, do we willingly allow ourselves to be possessed? A favorite author of mine and a friend of my grandfather, A.W. Tozer, wrote about original creation, that sin had introduced complications and had made the very gift of God a potential ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine, also known as humanity. And things, other things, other than God, were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight amongst themselves for first place upon the throne. This is not a mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always possess. It covets things with a deep, fierce passion. Ah, in the middle of Tozer's quote here, I'm reminded of the Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite trilogies. And think of that ring, right? My precious, it possesses. And Tozer continues, the pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the old nature of real and Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The root of our hearts have grown down into things. And we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gift is now, God's gift now takes the place of God. And the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. It's from the pursuit of God. Conversely, the Christian is to be possessed by Christ himself. He manifests himself, as Paul describes in verse 17 and 18, through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Colossians now, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, Speaking about the preeminence of Christ, he uses identical language here. Listen carefully. Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, for in, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then everything he might preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
Christ himself possesses the Christian. Indeed, this is what the name Christian means, little Christ. This is the sum of the matter for Paul and the final purpose for all faithful Christians, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Redemption, recreation, and empowerment are all aimed at one and the same object, to walk as Christ, to love God wholly, and love neighbor perfectly. Who are you really? There are all kinds of things that possess us. We call them possessions, cars, bank accounts, homes, boats, bikes, Pokemon cards, pets, computers, art. The list could be endless. You run through the list of possessions that are in your home. What are you possessed by? And how do those things define you? Are you possessed by God? Finally, let me comment briefly about process. For there must be a way in which we can move beyond our weaknesses and possessions and into life in Christ. It's already been briefly mentioned here, and that is faith. The one who places his faith in Christ is the one who submits to the overthrow of his own life by Christ himself, who will take up his rightful place within each heart and rule and reign from there. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Matthew 16. A.W. Tozer is helpful again here. He says, the way to the deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely valleys of soul poverty and abnegation of all things. The blessed ones who possess the kingdom are they who have repudiated every external thing and have rooted from their hearts all sense of possessing. He continues, we are often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved, relatives, and friends, but we have no need of such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy, but to save. Everything is safe which we commit to him. And nothing is really safe which is not so committed. This is especially true of our own hearts. It is always best to trust the Lord and let him lead and govern all that we have, even ourselves. We are quite an academic people here at Grace Anglican. If we're honest, we revel in our intellectual power and prowess and think as thinking people. We are people of the book, not only the scripture, but the book of common prayer. We've created and added our own bookish things to know and to follow and to be obedient to. Yet here, Paul indicates that we are to be about more than just our minds. He knows there is a knowledge that goes beyond what we can know intellectually. After all, Paul is a Hebrew, and Hebrew people understood that to fully know something was to live it out. May I suggest, along with Paul, though I'm not sure he would use these words or say it quite this way, that when we stop 
at knowledge in our pursuit of God, we're actually truncating the work of God in our lives. Let me say that again. When we stop and think that all we need to know about God is cognitive stuff, we're actually truncating the work of God in our lives. If our only pursuit of God, of the Lord, is through intellectual means, then we're missing out on an awful lot of God. After all, he's infinite in time and space and understanding. He has all the knowledge of the universe. How will created humankind ever achieve full knowing except in proximity to God? We won't. So we therefore must engage in other kinds of knowing than simply intellectual. We must engage God in a kind of knowing that requires all of us, our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, our relationships, our character. The most godly people I've ever met in my life were people who knew the secret of the interior life in Christ. They were people who spent a lifetime in prayer, walking with the Lord in the quiet places of their hearts. They were not educated people. We usually consider a requirement for value in society to be one that requires education. Both of these individuals only had high school diplomas to their names. But deep in the ways of the Lord and their understanding of him, they were. Thankfully, dwelling in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and knowing the love of Christ doesn't depend upon your status in life. It has to do with what God places in you. Verse 17, Paul says, faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. You don't have to be educated, sophisticated, wealthy, or have lots of followers on social media. It depends upon God and our willingness to learn his way. This is most obviously demonstrated when we pray, because in prayer, we stop doing our thing, and we turn ourselves to God's work. We submit ourselves to the Lord, and we give him time and attention. And like Paul, we bow our knees, inviting God into our lives to have his way with us, and to shape and change and transform us as he sees fit. This inviting the Lord into our lives will define who we are. Let's allow God to move in this way, defining who you are. At the end of the section, Paul finds himself caught up in the realization that all of this that we've just discussed, the first three chapters as well, is from God. And so I think he comes to the end of the section and, and realizes What's my response? His response is praise and blessing God. Because he knows this is God's work and God's ministry to give faith, to give strength, to give understanding to his people so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. I want to end this sermon together in prayer, praying this passage. I encourage you to keep your bulletins open. I will pray it. Let's make this our prayer and join him in praying for ourselves, our families, and the church. And rather unusual, I want to invite you to kneel, just like Paul did. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, we ask that according to the riches of your glory, 
you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray that we would be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of that love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses our knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here I invite your spoken prayers of agreement with Paul for us. Be specific in your praying and echo what Paul has declared here in this passage. Let's ask the Lord to be present to us and fill us in new ways. Here we offer ourselves to you, Lord, to have your way with us, to fill, strengthen, sustain, renew, restore, all for your glory. And like Paul, now to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to you, God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We at last, they took your life.